But I also feel like this one Muslim said, I come to the Zen Center because I feel like it's going to make me a better Muslim. And I, I do feel that there's something about that negative, that passive, that receptive quality in Zen that gives people space to just go home, to return home, gives them space to return home to what is their truth, you know, as a Christian or as a Muslim or as a Jew, as a woman, as a man, as an old person, as a young person. You know, it's like, it's just basic breathing room to find ourselves. Myozin Joan Amaral is the founder and guiding teacher of the Zen Center North Shore in Beverly, Massachusetts. Her initial interest in Zazen grew out of her background in modern dance, and she continues to explore how we can embody the teachings more deeply. She trained at Tassajara Zen Mountain Monastery for six years and lived as a resident at the San Francisco Zen Center. Her primary focus is an exploration of the dynamic relationship between formal practice and the everyday, messy human life, with a deep commitment to social justice. Miozin was given permission to teach by Zenke Blanche Hartman in 2012. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quanum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quanum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit Quantum Zen online.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Joan, you lived for several years in uh, one of the famous American monasteries on the West Coast in California, Tassajara, and then also really at one of the preeminent Zen centers, like residential Zen centers in San Francisco. Mm-hmm studied with Blanche Hartman, who's sort of famous teacher. And then out of all that, that mix, you decided, I'm going to go to coastal Massachusetts to a little town, (laughs) Beverly. And I'm curious how you made that move and why, why did you decide to bring, you know, Zen to, to Beverly, Massachusetts? Mm. Like how you got there? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not exactly like I decided to bring Zen to Beverly, Massachusetts. <laughs> but ever since then, I've been hoping that they're okay with it being here. Right. Um, so, yeah. All right. So, I'm from New Hampshire originally. So, this is a bit of a homecoming. You know, mm-hmm. I'm in my 50s now. And uh, the precipitating factor was my dad was beginning to enter a dying process. And I really wanted to know him when he died. And I didn't think I would. I wanted to feel it 
when he died. And I didn't think I would because he, I didn't really know him. And so let's see, there was a confluence of events. I was, I had finished my period of monastic training in the mountains at Tassajara, returned to the city. Um, and I had finished a chaplaincy training program, a year-long chaplaincy training program. And so I had kind of chaplaincy on my mind. We had also experienced a series of deaths at San Francisco Zen Center at that time in quick succession, including the suicide of a Sangha member in the building. He was found in his room. And so then I got the call from my dad and my chaplaincy training was coming to an, a close. And for my exit interview with Gil Fransdahl, <laughs> I'm going to name him and he can always, you know, say, I never said that. <laughs> At the end, he said to me, so what's your next step? And I said, well, you know, maybe in five years or so, I'd, I'd like to see about establishing a practice place somewhere. And he, not being from the San Francisco Zen Center only tradition, I mean, he's he's transmitted in that tradition, but he's also a Vipassana teacher. Right. <laughs> so he's much more freed up. And he said, why wait? <laughs> do it now. And I was like, what? It would never have occurred to me to start to do it like right away. So that was in my mind. I felt really encouraged by Gil. And, um, and, and then my dad called. And then I, I came back that summer. I came back to New England. I had never even heard of Marblehead before. I actually had spent a summer in Beverly, um, which, you know, Beverly's changed a lot in the last 25 years or so. But back then, I would not have imagined moving from San Francisco to Beverly. And, you know, it just, it's a fact that, that, that uh, you know, like Starbucks, there's basically a Zen center in every corner in Northern California. And I knew that, 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 that population did not need another Zen center. I was also really feeling that the state of California is pretty maxed out in terms, even back then in 2012, 2011, I was wondering about climate, you know, about the drought and access to drinking water. And it just felt like it was time to go. And so I received an invitation to, to stay and to, okay, so here's a story. This is a bit of the lore. I haven't told this story in a while, but um, we are approaching next year, our 10th anniversary. So we're going to be whipping out all these old stories. Mm -hmm. And someone wanted to actually write a TV series called The Zendo <laughs> about us because there were so many crazy stories from the beginning. I am not a trust fund baby. I don't have money. And so this, this Zen center of ours just sort of arose, you know, from nothing, which is perfect for Zen. At any rate, what happened was an old high school friend reconnected. He was living in Marblehead. Um, I visited him in Marblehead. Hurricane Irene hit. The flight back to San Francisco was canceled. He and I had this long conversation and he, he asked me what I was interested in doing in life. And I said, well, I have this thought of establishing a practice place. I've come out of San Francisco Zen Center, which is wonderful. 
I have so much gratitude. Like you said, it's got a wonderful reputation, deep training, a beautiful lineage, and it was time to go. Mm-hmm. I really felt as a woman, a woman priest, I had reached my edge as to how much I was going to, my training stopped. You know, I needed to train outside of the bassinet, <laughs> basically. I needed mm-hmm. to get out. And so, you know, I, I spent the weekend in Marblehead and I remember he felt he was so um, encouraging and just planted the seed in my mind that maybe this was possible, even though I didn't have money and I didn't know anybody and I didn't know how it would work. But I remember I got up and went for a, a walk early that next morning after having this wonderful conversation it was a beautiful late august morning in 2011 and i walked to fort sewell for anybody who knows um marblehead and i sat on a on a bench overlooking the little harbor there the water was so blue the sky was so blue and for the first time in my life i felt filled with both tranquility and possibility and I just stood up and I started walking back and across the harbor I saw this woman with her little dog and it was she was maybe a hundred feet away but she stopped and I could see her watching me across the harbor and as I walked around the bend she was out of view for a while and I came around the bend and there she was again still stopped and she watched me as I approached And I walked right up to her, stopped in front of her, and she said, do you meditate? (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm not wearing anything in particular. I'm not walking with my hands in shashu. You know, I'm just walking. And it was really interesting. And I said, well, you know, yes. (laughs) And I have this thought of establishing a practice place. And she said, oh, you have to meet so-and-so. And then... That was what launched the Marblehead Zen Center, where we were known as that for a couple years um, before we moved over to towns, which is a big deal in New England. (laughs) It's like moving to Mars or something. Yeah. And so that was that was difficult. But since then, we've had I I think it's like four physical practice places. Uh, We've been very scrappy. We've lived in every imaginable type of situation. We started in a haunted house in Old Town Marblehead. We moved (laughs) to an Episcopal church for two years. We were in residence, a dedicated space within view of the sanctuary. It was super cool. Yeah. And then I started to feel like like when when the parishioners said to me, we see you more than we see our own priest. Oh. Well, maybe, you know, it's time to go. And so then we moved to a duplex in Beverly. That's when we came over to Beverly. And I was in residence there for a while. I practiced with that model of being a temple priest. That lasted for three years until the person who owned the house, um, the house fell into foreclosure. And oh, so, gosh. And I, I was on my way to my therapist when I got a text from the Tenzo, Ben Cook. He's making soup in the kitchen. And he said, Joan, there are all these bidders and bankers out front. Did you realize that, that Zen Center's, the building's on the block? So we, we had a very interesting encounter with uh, the man who had bought the building. And, and it was actually kind of beautiful. That's a whole bunch of sub-stories. 
But then from there, we moved into a place, a storefront on Park Street, which is the bad part of town, which I loved. That was after living in kind of a cushy neighborhood. Then we were we were right across from an auto body shop, diagonal to a um, a human body shop. It was a gym, and lots of lots of kind of the working class. You know, it was really cool to interact with them. And then lots of people color people of color walking by. I would watch them in Zazen just walking by from a lower income neighborhood over to the train station, which was a couple blocks away. Lots of immigrants in that area. So that was really, that was beautiful to experience that. And then when the pandemic hit, we, we let go of that space, which of course we were renting. And now we are using the time to gestate, to incubate, to get stronger. Um, you know, it's been a, in the last year, it's been an intensified time of racial justice work. Mm-hmm. We've established a BIPOC-led group. It's led by by Black voices and Black experiences, but it's not Black people doing the work. It's I'm facilitating it, kind of providing structure to it and encouraging this inquiry into why would there be a racial justice group at a Zen center? You know, what is the connection between the process of meditation, the process of awakening, as we say on the cushion, and the process of awakening, which I feel is deeply relevant to the practice of democracy, the practice of justice of all forms. And so so we're, we're, we're growing deeply and kind of widely, I think, as we prepare to hopefully buy a space when the pandemic ends and it's safe to come back into physical practice. The story, you know, that you told about um, Gil, it's so funny. I actually, I always knew him as a Vipassana teacher. Uh I didn't actually know that he Mm -hmm. was part of that as well. Um, But it, it sort of reminded me of the, um, there is a sort of an apocryphal story about the Buddha where he awakens and you know meets mara and the, all that stuff and then uh then he sits on his cushion and doesn't get up to go teach because he's like people won't believe me and brahma comes down from the sky and is like what are you doing <laughs> it's time it's time for you to go teach. like we need to hear it we all need to hear it even me brahma needs to hear you teach Mm-hmm. And the Buddha's like, well, I don't think they'll get it, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> so he gets up and he starts teaching, and then that's the story. You know, so that doesn't exist in all the traditions, but it's I've always actually found comfort in that story. Mm-hmm. Particularly for those of us who are called, you know, to use some Christian language, if you will, like called to go share the dharma or you know in their their terms share the good news right that there is there is a path of liberation and yet it's we still live even if we have like faith courage determination these things sometimes the doubt is there like oh i'll do it in five years (laughs) why five years why not now because i'm zen (laughs) (laughs) zen yeah and you 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 
I don't know, you gestate more is that word again, you know, you, and, and we're discouraged from writing books, you know, at least in my immediate tradition. Um, so, and it is a question. I think that there's something to that about humility and modesty and not being so, you know, chest thumping. There is something to that, but both are really helpful. And that's why Gil is really helpful. He's a bridge person. Yeah, both are. I agree. To see people go teach when they're not ready, right? It's, I was definitely not ready. <laughs> well, I, well, who is who is ready? I, I like. Yeah, that's the thing too. You know, like I real did I tell you this? Just uh, that anybody can start a Zen center. Anybody can sure. start a Zen center. In fact, I know of some UU people who say that they have a Zen center. I mean. Sure. But they, they, in you know, that they're, they're giving Dharma talks, you know, where they, where I wondered and I asked them, oh, who Dharma transmitted you, you know? But the truth of the matter is anybody can hang a shingle out that says Zen Center. But there's a difference between that and whether or not you can maintain and sustain a Zen Center. And in all seriousness, I will tell you that I was not ready to teach. I mean, I hadn't actually received Dharma transmission until 2013. And I came in 2012 and Blanche was like, oh, I guess we better, you know, transmit you. And it does change things to have that kind of vote of confidence. It does. But I really, I really do feel that it's a process of growing into this role. And it is definitely connected with students and Sangha members and community collaborators and co-conspirators who help me grow into that. It, you know, it's, a, I feel a little ashamed, like when I look back on it. I mean, I, these days, I am starting to use the word teacher a little bit more, but someone recently um, talked about the term Dharma teacher. And I think that's really interesting. That for me feels wider than even saying Zen teacher, especially because I'm doing all this um, multi-faith work, like there are two Christians at least on our board. And one of them is a Christian, a Baptist minister. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the big question I had when I established the Marblehead Zen Center, the King Zen Center North Shore was, how do I uphold something specific without falling into dogma and fundamentalism? Because I feel that the specificity of everything is really helpful. Like, I don't want mush. <laughs> I want mm-hmm. clarity. And, and I yearned for lineage. I mm-hmm. learned for training, for being an apprentice. That's what I missed in the dance world. I, didn't ha- I wanted that kind of relationship with my dance teachers, but the setup wasn't conducive to that. So that's one thing I love about the Zen tradition is it's so specific, but just like everything, everything casts a shadow. And so the shadow of of this, what I'm talking about, the specificity of a specific tradition, lineage, school, is, um, you know, a kind of inbred feeling that, that can sometimes feel like fear, like territorialism. And so I was just, let me just say one last thing. I was saying to the police chief the other day, we're engaged in this deep conversation with our police chief here in Beverly about encouraging him to awaken to the reality of racial injustice right here in this town. And he can't see it. 
And so one of the things we were asking for is a civilian oversight board of the Beverly Police Department. And he's nervous about that. He's like, well, I don't want people who aren't police officers telling me what to do. And I totally identify with that because in the early days, our board of the Marblehead Zen Center, they weren't Zen practitioners. They were coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas and it was very messy for at least the first five years. But now we're stable enough, we're solid enough, there are enough, there's enough of a critical mass of Zen practitioners that I can relax and we can welcome a Baptist minister onto the board. I love the fact that you have a Baptist minister on here. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Why just it's like part of me is like, don't go down a rabbit hole, Ian, but like why would a Baptist minister want to be on your board? Oh my God, it's great. It's a great question. That's at the heart of the matter, Ian. It absolutely is. Well, sometimes, even before hanging out with Black Baptists, when I was giving Dharma talks at San Francisco Zen Center in the Buddha Hall, I kind of felt like a Baptist. I mean, uh -huh. I'm Mediterranean. I am not trying to be Japanese. I am not trying to be, you know, like, even though I'm from New England, I am primarily Mediterranean, first and foremost. So, as you can tell, I'm not very taciturn. I'm pretty emotional. And I would, I was practically Bible thumping from the Dharma seed. I would catch myself. And actually, though, when I would watch, listen to the tapes afterwards, it didn't sound so much like that. Internally, it just felt like that because I felt so, you know, different, I guess I would say. Uh, so, and then Andre, Reverend Andre, who's my co-conspirator, he's my brother, um, my beloved friend he he's kind of like a baptist buddhist there is something mm -hmm. about meditation i think because you know and we, we've been doing this inquiry really deeply he and i have been collaborating for a few years now but most deeply since george floyd's murder mm -hmm. we've been like you know a couple times a week he's on zen zoom with us and and so i think he's in that inquiry too of how can this practice of meditation or relaxation, you know, especially the practice of zazen, I think, which is non-dual, where we're not trying to do anything. We're relaxing into our own goodness. That's how I see it. Our own wholesomeness, our own wholeness. I think he's really, really drawn to that. And then also he had the experience with me and he told the story, Ayo Yotunde came to speak last month and i asked reverend andre to come join us and reverend bernadette too she's um uh bethel ame <clears throat> also a minister and um so that was that was really wonderful to have this conversation together and, and andre retold the story that i've told several times among my white peers at these national zen conferences andre woke me up when he said in a multi-faith clergy meeting all of us white clergy he's the only person of color there he said you know look i'm tired of being the only person in the room to express emotion you we you white people need to start feeling more and i took that in because i'm already that way i'm already that way and so there was something deeply connecting he felt that he tells the story that i went over to him and took his hands and then Io said something like, Joan, you know, you're small framed and he's this big black guy, you know, what would make you feel that you could do that? And I don't know. I mean, it's just the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, it was a breakthrough. It was just human. Yeah. And, and so 
And it's a relief to me to use these categories to get beneath the categories. Mm-hmm. It's fun and it's exciting to, you know, when I left the monastery, when I was walking out the, the, the monastery gates, I remember, I remember looking around, even though it's, you know, the middle of the mountains, there's no one there. But I remember the feeling of like just looking around and asking who wants to play, you know, and seeking out people who are really different for me, like not wanting to just hang out with Zen people. It's like almost trusting the practice is strong enough and clear enough that then I can, I can branch out. It's what Dogen Zenji did. I mean, I, I don't mean to have the hubris to compare myself. To <laughs> I identify with his, he's a maverick. Yeah. He's a trailblazer. He was uprooting the status quo. That was, that was what he was doing. I value that. Well, and I think there's actually a lesson in the, like, if we look at the sixth patriarch, we look at, you know, they actually, all of them, none of them were playing it safe, right? They're all kind of mavericks. When you go through, you see who is there, sort of the the guy who started the tradition that I'm in, the, not the, the quantum school, right? Like, had to leave his home so that he could do something else. Dogen, similar. All these people, like revivalists in a way. But, you know, the tradition that you're in, I, I remember reading, oh God, this was a long time ago, but it's, you know, Zen mind, beginner mind. And, you know, Suzuki Roshi, he's got this line in there and it has stayed with me ever since I read that book. I don't, gosh, I don't remember how long ago, but, and he talked about having, like the forms are important. It actually makes your life more expansive when you don't have anything to sort of hang on to actually there's nothing it's just i remember that really well mm-hmm. so how great to have a tradition that you can sit in mm-hmm. but then like it's from that the creativity is able to blossom exactly exactly yeah i think you said something like the forms or the rules are meant to free you right i totally believe that Yes. And, you know, I came to Zen as a dancer, so I was already familiar with the disciplined body. And I love this question, are you disciplined enough to be free? And since, you know, since leaving San Francisco Zen Center, I've been really interested in that, that dynamic between discipline and freedom, you know, discipline and relaxation, you know, relaxing into our goodness, like the precepts. So I'm, I'm, training a whole group of people in in the precepts right now. They're preparing to receive the precepts and it's arduous. Mm -hmm. You know, we spend at least a year studying the text and then they sew their own rock suit. There are no shortcuts. I know you can get those online these days. You can. (laughs) But in our tradition, and this was Blanche's great uh, offering to, to our tradition, she was a sewing teacher and she made sure that, that there were other sewing teachers firmly in place. Um, and so, you know, with each needle, the, the, each time you bring the needle down, you say, Namu kie butsu, I plunge into Buddha with each stitch. And so that's really important because it engages the body. Our body gets involved with that. I love this. You know, that when we have things to do with our hands, it's the opposite of, it's like an antidote to neurosis and anxiety. Meaning we're not stuck here. Our whole body's involved with it. It's not, there's, it has nothing to do with anything conceptual. 
So that takes time. It just takes time to do that. And so, so your body's there and studying the precepts and receiving the precepts. And then furthermore, something about these precepts too, around this freedom and this relaxation, growing up Catholic, you know, there of course are similarities between the Ten Commandments and the, the, the Ten Grave or Clear Mind precepts. There's a big difference in thou shalt not kill and I vow not to kill. So connecting the precepts, and we just had the full moon ceremony last night, the Bodhisattva precepts ceremony, which is offered every month around the time of the full moon, um, is a con connecting ethical conduct, morality, with our deep wish to be free and peaceful and happy. That those two are actually, you know, like this in Gasho are, are one and the same. You know, that we I, I feel that that I can't really be happy if I'm out of alignment, if there's some misconduct here happening. And so back to the racial justice and the social justice work, the point I want to make too when I was in, invoking Dogen is for me a pivotal um, kind of activity in my life is therapy. I mentioned that earlier, um, owning my own woundedness, bringing close my own pain, really, and using that to connect with the pain of the world. Because I don't think that necessarily happens on the cushion in Zazen. Could you say more? Yeah. I mean, I think I feel that Zazen, I was just saying this to someone this morning, Zazen... <laughs> just lets me know how many problems I have. <laughs> not, you know, and like, you know, I've done so many referrals. Oh, you know, and I have a wonderful therapist who I've referred people to or called a suicide hotline or, you know, um, kind of midwife someone through a divorce, you know, and then we had a, a marriage completion ceremony. It was very beautiful actually in the end. But Zazen itself extremely important, you know, on a daily basis. I'm, I'm, I'm a champion, you know, I'm a cheerleader for it, but you know, it, I feel like it's only one aspect of wholeness for myself. And I said earlier too, that my monastic training was beautiful and was really important and it's done, you know, <laughs> It's now time to go. And I feel like I might be spending the rest of my life going, what the hell was that? You know, integrating that, making it my own, and then expressing that. And that, you use the word creativity, that is a creative endeavor. So the four energies I'm interested in are zazen, social justice, for lack of a better word, self-care or nourishment, you know, involving the self you know, therapeutically with our woundedness. And the fourth one is creativity. Because it does feel like like we, our nation, our world, we're being faced with seemingly intractable problems that are going to require some fresh thinking, some fresh viewpoints, you know. And so I think we can access that with Zazen. But um I think it's best served when it's Zazen. And maybe this is why we always have these retreats, Zen and yoga or Zen and psychotherapy, Zen and, you know, 
fill in the blank. <laughs> I think there is something to that because Zen is so negative in a way. I mean, negative in the sense of like a camera, like I, I mean, in the mm-hmm. sense of like receptive. Mm-hmm. And that was a big problem early on. I And I've become a little bit sensitive to um, appropriation a little bit. And, and Zen is such a setup for that because especially maybe Soto Zen, because we are so open, I guess, and we're so receptive and we're so not knowing and we're so beginner's mind. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a fragile state for a takeover. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, just to listen to you, um, there is this, you know, and I, I use the term evangelical all the time, and people always they associate it with bad things, <laughs> or yeah, or Christians, and um, but it actually comes from the Roman Roman emperors uh, would when they had a male child, they would send out a notice that was the evangelist or something like that, and uh, Paul when he was writing his letters used that term for the good news. It was like the good news of the Roman emperor's son being born. And it then later became this thing. But really it's about, hey, there is this, there is this opportunity for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's an opportunity for you. Yes. And it appears all over the place. And I do think that Zen. Well, actually, I love, you know, there's more and more Christians who are coming to this mm-hmm. contemplative practice. And I think mm-hmm. some of them have had to rescue it from Desert Fathers, you know, uh, because it felt unsafe or maybe even disloyal uh, to call it meditation. So they call it contemplation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see more and more of these of the Christian tradition embracing this non-dual path. Yeah. And um, what I do love about the Christian tradition is the great commandment for justice, which you know Jesus is very explicit about. But it's a lot of American Buddhism doesn't really articulate it very well. Some people do. But it, and we're starting to see more of it. And I think in some part of like, why aren't we doing more of it? We talk about liberation. And to hear you speak and to hear your story of like, by the way, the Dharma, there's refuge, but there's also like work to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we leave the monastery, we leave the cushion because the suffering. Mm -hmm. And let me be clear, there is room for everything in the mandala. Mm -hmm. I really feel that. I do not feel like every priest needs to take to the streets. Oh, sure. And this is so rife with all kinds of contradiction and hypocrisy. I have to just name it. I'm reading this book right now, Chen Sing Han's new book. And she's coming to speak next month in March. She she wrote this book, Be the Refuge. Have you heard about this? I haven't heard this one. Oh, I recommend maybe you interview her next. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that it's Be the Refuge. It's something like Asian American Buddhists uh, practicing, oh, Asian Americans practicing Buddhism in America, you know. 
and it's calling it's calling our attention to you know all how white uh american buddhism ha is and and you know we we've sort of co-opted that and you know all the, the major publications and she names them you know you don't see you really don't see many asian americans being talked about but they're there and so what is that and i I wear Japanese robes. I have like the shoji screen behind me. And, you know, I use all these elements of, of a Japanese tradition. And yet I'm, you know, I'm exploring and, and, and it, it feels so. So my thing around the culture, the Japanese culture is if it weren't for all of that, there is no way I would have become a Zen priest. Because when I walked through the front door of San Francisco Zen Center, someone was introducing me to Zazen. And I was a choreographer in San Francisco. I was in the dance, the theater world. And I knew that my life was changing, that I was, I was, I had turned 30, you know, and I knew that something needed to shift. I was looking for how am I going to live this life in a sustainable way? And I walked through those doors and I saw it. I saw it in the statues, in the tatami in the smell of the incense and the sound of the bell and the robes and the architecture and the organic food and the cool people. It was the culture. It was a place with great production values. <laughs> I mean, it captured my imagination long enough for me to sit down and be still. Mm -hmm. And so, so that for me, that's what all of that is about. And I still continue to use all these elements not because I'm trying to be Japanese, but because it feels like a, a skillful means to uh, capture other people, you know. And but but I I understand and I'm super sensitive to the appropriation because I'm feeling it now too from you know people from other traditions. But I also feel like this one Muslim said, "I practice meditation because I I come to the Zen Center because I feel like it's going to make me a better Muslim." Mm -hmm. and I, I do feel that there's something about that negative, that passive, that receptive quality in Zen that gives people space to just go home, to return home, gives them space to return home to what is their truth, you know, as a Christian or as a Muslim or as a Jew, as a woman, as a man, as an old person, as a young person. You know, it's like it's just basic breathing room to find ourselves. And so, so I'm good with that. You know, it's all fine. It all just sort of comes out in the wash. You know, I really have no problem, but it doesn't mean there aren't conversations to be had, you know, and challenging issues to be raised. But I think that is also part of the dynamic interplay of Zen in contact with all this, you know, other. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Miozin Joan Amaral encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Zen Center North Shore at zencenternorthshore.org, and I'll include a link in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. 
And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope that you'll join me again next week.